I'm Alyssa. Welcome to Strange History, the podcast where we talk about, you guessed it, strange history. We're in a new location today, but it's only for today. Where are my moms? (laughs) So thank you, Alyssa's mom, for letting us use your dining room table and good internet connection. So today's episode is going to cover a lot, but it's all going to be like interconnected and kind of cool. We're going to talk about a plane crash that almost sparked a nuclear war, a prisoner exchange, and maybe more than one government cover-up. Maybe like three government cover-ups. Oh no. What a rare occurrence for the U.S. government to cover things up. Oh, it's going to be so fun. Might also discuss an assassination. Which ties into another episode. Right. But we'll get to that later. Oh, yes. And if you want to learn more about that assassination in question, we'll have links at the end of the episode. (laughs) Episode 28. Espionage and you, too. Francis Gary Powers was born in Jenkins, Kentucky on August 17, 1929. His parents were Oliver and Ida Powers, and he grew up um, in Pound, Virginia during the Great Depression. So right after he was born, they moved just right across the border. He was the second oldest of six siblings, and he was the only boy. So he had five sisters. Sounds like hell. (laughs) Um, His father was a coal miner, um, and his dad was very much... He wanted his son to have a better life, so he wanted Francis to actually become a physician instead. That's definitely not what he did, but... He still had a pretty decent life, I'd say. He attended Grundy High School in Virginia, graduating in 1946, and then he went on to attend Milligan College in Tennessee. Four years later, he graduated. Um, I know he got a bachelor's. I do not know what in. I couldn't find it. Interesting. Yeah. I bet it's something like off the wall and random. I I hope so. Maybe it's Spanish. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> A few months later, he enlisted in the U.S. Air Force as an aviation cadet. He took uh, his training took place at the Williams Air Force Base in Arizona. Um, he completed that in 1952. Then he was commissioned as a second lieutenant in uh, December of that same year. He was assigned to the 468th Strategic Fighter Squadron at the Turner Air Force Base in Georgia as a Republic F-84 Thunderjet pilot. I've never heard of that plane. I neither. Out of all the times I've been to the Air and Space Museum, the Dayton Museum, the Naspen Naval Museum, I've never heard of the F-84 Thunderjet. You're going you're gonna to look it up. I'm looking it up right now. I'll take a drink of my chai. Oh, God, it's so ugly. Oh my goodness. So right after World War II they made them? Yeah. Oh, and if it flew too low and too fast, the ring the wings would just rip off. Oh. What a beautiful fucking aircraft. <laughs> Could you imagine just finding your own business? Like walking your dog and you see a plane just detach? I mean, it came out in, in 1947. Yeah. I feel like at that point, the world was just kind of over a little bit of everything Yeah. at that point. Ugh. Okay, moving on. <laughs> on April 2nd, 1955, he got married to Barbara Gay Moore. This matters. I will bring her back up later. Are you also going to talk about Barbara Moore? 
I was going to talk about Barbara Moore also. Briefly, just... Okay. Briefly. Okay. okay. Are you going to talk about their quote-unquote happy marriage? Yes, that okay. we'll get there. I was going to talk about their quote-unquote happy marriage we as well. We can do it together. Fantastic. I didn't read Brad's script before this. <clears throat> I did not read Melissa's script before this. I so wanted to be surprised. I also wanted to be surprised. <laughs> Uh, January 1956, Francis was recruited to become a civilian U-2 pilot for the CIA. By May of that year, his training was complete, and by August, he was doing high-altitude surveillance and um, flying over the USSR, providing vital intelligence photographs of Russian military activity to the Eisenhower administration. He was part of a unit known as the Second Weather Observational Squadron Provisional, also called Didactic... Oh my, I'm going to kill myself also called Detachment 1010. His family thought he was a NASA weather reconnaissance pilot. But? He's an international super spy. I hate that you put that <laughs> in the script. But it's funny. It is hilarious. It's true. And I love that his family was like, oh, he's just like a fancy weather pilot. He's a weatherman. Because we'll get back to that too. Sounds like he lived a very interesting life up until he was recruited by the CIA. Yes. And you and, want to talk about what plane he And I am going to talk about flew. his plane. Yes. He's going. So there exist a great many vehicles in the world. In the air, on land, and on the mysterious seas that surround us all. Some vehicles become a household name because of their usefulness and their durability. Things like Ram, Ford, or Toyota... Others have become famous for their speed and power. Lamborghini, Ferrari, some for their size. Titanic, Bismarck, Enterprise. Some become famous just because of how interesting they are and how little people actually knew about them. SR-71, the Blackbird, F-22, the Raptor, and this plane in question that would go on to make world news and probably almost instigate nuclear war, the U-2. And no... This episode is not about the band that invaded everyone's iPhones a few years ago. Following the Second World War, numerous advances in military arms and travel were being developed, and with the rise of the Soviet Union as a world power, the United States wanted to be able to observe their enemies wherever they were. Unfortunately, satellites were not yet practical as they are today. Thus, several calls were put out to numerous different companies to refocus production on key military elements, most notably which most notably of which would become the Dragon Lady Project, also known as the Lockhead Martin U-2 Spy Reconnaissance. A man by the name of James Baker, a designer of optical systems hired by the U.S. Air Force, as well as one Dr. Roderick Scott, began working on a specialized camera system designed to be used at high altitudes of over 70,000 feet. The base of this new camera was a Hikon Model K-38 and would feature at its forefront a lens 24 inches in diameter. A series of new anti-vibration features and de-icing features were added onto the system as well, and this would become known as the Model A1. Baker would then utilize new ray tracing techniques and produce the A2 model camera, which featured three K38s wired into one system. Not content with how the camera worked quite yet, a new one would be developed with a 36-inch lens capable of taking what are called horizon-to-horizon -horizon shots. Like panoramic? Completely panoramic. Like all the way around? Like those like dumb 3D picture people think that people do? Yes, but looking down. Oh, okay. 
The apparatus could capture in a single image up to 27,000 miles, which is about the width of the United States long and 125 miles wide, and had such a high resolution that it can discern features down to two and a half feet. Oh my God. Yeah. So these were like spy spy planes. These were spy spy planes. I never thought about spy planes or like the spies that were, I, I didn't know anything about this. I don't know shit about the Cold War, to be honest with you. I just know it wasn't a war. And eventually, Kennedy, like, I don't know. And Khrushchev, of course. <laughs> now, the max photo ceiling of the U-2 was 65,000 feet. So, it could look about twice the cruising altitude of a commercial jet downward and be able to capture whole massive photographs of everything so like commercial jet like regular planes like modern day okay it flew higher than planes that we have today oh my god the massive size of the camera meant that in a single photograph you could see the entirety of the state of california in its wholeness every street building and blade of grass and capturing the entire thing would only take about four hours of total flight time you could see everything and at this time that's a big deal you too still in use today i mean i imagine so the success of the photography program undertaken by the u2 was paramount to the cold war relations between the u.s and the ussr with the threat of nuclear war always on the horizon it made sense to know when and where the ussr would strike from and the u2 was one of the most important weapons in the arsenal of the united states by 1950, however, tensions had grown so high that Russia was actively shooting down any and all aircraft that entered their airspace, sometimes even engaging those in Japanese airspace if they deemed them to be a threat. Their go-to fighter interceptor was the MiG-17, which boasted a ceiling of 45,000 feet on its best day, meaning that it still lagged below the U-2 by 20,000 feet, and that's about the length of 60 city blocks. The MiG was the predator of the sky, reaching a top speed of 711 miles an hour and absolutely built to kill. It could have intercepted the much slower U-2, who had a red zone of only around 500 miles per hour. But that's where that massive height difference would come into play. The USSR could not throw anything that high, and it was believed by the U.S. government at this point in time that their radar and tracking capabilities were limited to only around 60,000 feet. So, with a much higher flying aircraft, we didn't think that we could actually be seen. We were wrong. The USSR had already developed passive tracking systems and maxed out much, much higher. With the need of a higher flying aircraft, the U-2 spy plane would officially be born at the request of... You guessed it. Catholics! Okay, that's a joke. But it was the CIA who were responsible for bankrolling the entire project. The camera was there, and the Lockheed Martin Aeronautical Company would step in for the construction of the beast itself. Lockheed received two or $22.5 million in funding to pay for the program, which today is around $227.6 in modern U.S. currency. With the creation of 20 planes by July of 1955, the project had hit a very interesting set of milestones. Firstly, all equipment for the, tele for the telemetry and gauge systems were actually made by a third-party company. Lockheed Martin had absolutely nothing going into the construction of this plane, but the company that they kind of subcontracted, their equipment could only tune to 45,000 feet. So they had to make a brand new set of equipment to make this plane. 
And when they were asked what it was for, the CIA did their thing and basically said that it was for an experimental rocket. No questions asked. CIA also had requested a brand new fuel to be made. And the ones who picked that contract up was Shell Oil. They designed a low vapor, low evaporation propellant referred to as J7. Flint pesticides nearly went out of business due to the massive amount of chemicals that they had to provide to the project. And when it was all said and done and ready for flight, the CIA informed Lockheed Martin the plane could not be flown from the Burbank Skunk Works in Burbank, California due to its secrecy. So what did they do? Glad you asked. The CIA simply tore the planes apart. They loaded them into a series of smaller planes and then just kind of flew them into the middle of the desert. And there in the middle of the desert was a single runway that had been built just for this project. And that super secret military installation is still in use today. This was the official formation of what is called Area 51. No! <laughs> and the CIA, those tricky bastards, they used U in the definition of this plane. U stands for utility. It was supposed to be the R2, which is reconnaissance, but they simply avoided the issue and didn't want anybody to know that they were building spy planes. So, government cover-up numbers one and two. The first few flights of the U-2 proved that it could very easily be tracked by the Soviets. They had caught it as soon as it entered airspace, and they had sent fighter after fighter to attempt to shoot the plane down, but every single attempt was rather unsuccessful. One pilot stated that some photos that were taken by the U-2 were unusable because of all the planes that were pursuing it. All you could see was just planes and nothing else. While they never got close enough to tag or even see the plane in question, Israel did. A lucky pilot managed to get close enough on accident to photograph the plane, and he identified it in a book as a weather reconnaissance vehicle. No questions asked. He didn't understand what he was looking at, but at that point, he really didn't care. On May 1st, 1960, it was decided that a flight path from Peshawar, Pakistan to Bodo, Norway could see most Soviet military installations not previously captured on film. One of the main reasons for this flight was looking for what are called bison bombers. I didn't put that in the script, but bison bombers were like the Russians' answer to our B-52 Stratofortress. Mm -hmm. Just big, slow, and, you know, capable of carrying nukes. Right. We wanted to see how many they had, where they were, that way we could target them in the event that we absolutely had to. Chosen for this mission was, drumroll please, Francis Gary Powers. He was a veteran of 27 successful flights. He would fly his own U-2 spy plane, serial number 566693, from the Peshawar Air Base without incident until he approached the city of... <laughs> oh my god, Sandra. no, wait, no, I vaguely can speak... I can't speak Russian, but I can read it. Sverdlovsk? Let's go with that. It's a city in the Ural Mountain Range. He had flown around 2,000 miles when something horrible happened. Russia had no fighters that they could use to shoot down the U-2, but a series of SAMs, surface-to-air missiles, were fired at the plane. One of the S-75 missiles did hit Powers U-2, breaking the epinage from the fuselage and prompting the plane to spin out of control. The nose tilted up, and the tail, what was left of it, pointed down, and Gary was unable to hit the self-destruct button for the special equipment on the plane. He had panicked and released the cockpit and himself by pulling the ejection lever, and while in midair after his chute deployed, he took his emergency escape map and dropped it. He also purposely rid himself of his CIA-provided suicide device, which was a silver dollar around his neck with a poison pin. He kept the pin. 
He did keep the pin. He kept the pin, but he got rid of the little silver dollar. Right. But he kept the pin. He did keep the pin. He had still hoped for escape, but hit the ground hard and was almost instantly taken into the custody of the Russians. After realizing they lost their pilot, the CIA concocted a cover story. Gary Powers was simply in a weather plane and had drifted off course when his oxygen equipment went awry. They did not know that the plane had been recovered in its entirety alongside its pilot and all sensitive information and equipment. Now, by remaining silent about what was going on, Soviet Premier Nikita Khrushchev had managed to lull the U.S. into a false sense of security. The U.S. federal government was like, oh, this is just a man in a weather plane, to which... At the Paris conference, which was a meeting of the four world superpowers, Krajnov was like, oh, it's just a weatherman? Explain all these photographs of our military installations. And when he basically kind of forced Eisenhower into a corner, he just wanted an apology. That's all he wanted. Khrushchev is such an interesting individual. He just wanted Eisenhower to apologize, and Eisenhower refused to do so. Because why not? I have a question. I have an answer. You might not. Did his family think he was dead? No. No, because Russia actually made him appear on national television and that information was sent to the U.S. Are we going to get there? Did I ruin it? (laughs) No. No, I didn't add it into the script because I thought you were going to talk about that. No, I didn't. But no, um, he actually went through a whole court trial in Russia and all of it was televised. And he was found I about the court trial. Yeah, and he espionage. was found. Yeah, he was found guilty of espionage, and they sentenced him to a few years in prison. And then he never even made it like his entire thing. But no, the U.S. was informed exactly what had happened. They were told by Khrushchev himself that this man was still alive. He went down on the first of May. He was brought to his public appearance in Russia on the seventh of May. So, no, everyone knew that he was still alive. Gotcha. And the uh, they actually wanted Eisenhower to resign over this. Like, his cabinet members were like, okay, buddy, you're done. Because, you know, the U.S. government can't be like, oh, yeah, we sent spies to Russia. But Eisenhower's a total fucking chad and was like, oh, no, that was me. I did that. <laughs> Jesus. He didn't place the blame on Gary Powers or anyone else. He was just like, yeah, that's me. I did this. This is my fault. And this, the KGB interrogated this man for months and came up with so little useful information. He spoke nothing. He didn't know anything. They were told what they were supposed to do, and that was it. Yeah, he was. Uh, they asked him to denounce the U.S., which he refused. Um, they were trying to get secretive information out of him, mm-hmm. and he just didn't. I thought he just didn't say anything, but you're telling me he didn't know anything? He didn't know anything. He didn't even know how high his plane could even fly. Nice. Yeah, because the CIA actually did that part of their job right. And instead of, you know, giving this man every bit of information possible, they were just like, here's your job. Do it. I mean, I mean, that works. Yeah. But it was determined that he actually knew so little about this that he could not be a threat to U.S. national security. Well, he was, he was, um, oh God, what's it called? By the CIA. Yeah. What's that word? Debriefed? Yes. Yeah. He was debriefed for like a, like a while. Yeah. And he knew literally nothing, which is phenomenal. <laughs> he was just like, fantastic, really. Just flying my plane. Now, Gary Powers would stay in Russian custody for almost three years. 
And before we get to the prisoner exchange that we're going to be talking about, there have been many, many conspiracy theories about this. Oh. <laughs> now, one that I managed to dig up explained exactly how and why Russia knew to look for these U2s. Because, yes, their tracking systems could ping us that high up, but the U-2 had such a small radar appearance that if you didn't know what you were looking for, you wouldn't know it. It looks just like a big bird. There was, at one point in time, a Russian major who had defected to the U.S. unofficially. He was just kind of like a plant, and he was in constant contact with the CIA. He was sending them all kinds of information about Russia. His name was Peter Popov. Peter Popov informed the CIA that a very high-ranked KGB official had boasted in the Kremlin about knowing about the U2 program, called it by its code name too, the one given to it by the CIA. The dragon? Dragon lady. He knew about the color scheme, he knew their height, he knew the camera systems, the flight patterns, everything. Knew everything about these U2s. Now, the CIA didn't believe this, immediately anyway. But after Gary Powers was shot down, they were like, oh, fuck, we have a leak. And they tried for years to figure out who the leak was. They couldn't find any definitive information that it was this guy or that it was that guy. But in Japan, there was a U2 base. On that U2 base, there was a U.S. Marine by the name of fucking Lee Harvey Oswald. And he was actually one of the favorite targets for this conspiracy. Even before everything that happened with Kennedy, the CIA looked at this man and they were like, he's sketchy. I found no other information about this at all other than the fact that he was targeted by the CIA to... Can I Google this? Yeah. Will it give me anything? I have no idea. But he was targeted by the CIA. Looking at the National Archives, besties. <laughs> the amount of times we Google stuff during an episode is probably way too many and incredibly unprofessional. Well, we're always looking for more information because history is strange. Harmon, I just love your mustache, man. It is so defined. You look so mature with that. Thanks, man. Upkeep is a bit of a struggle, but I do it for the vibes. Upkeep? You know, I actually have some stuff that can help with that. Have you heard of the beard struggle? Oh, you mean the thing I deal with every day? No, the company. The Beard Struggle is a company dedicated to the growth and preservation of beards. They offer a long range of products from oils and balms to butters, shampoos, heated brushes, and even gross level ones. It wasn't in the script, but that does sound wonderful, but... Conditions... Rollers, Cologne, Brad, I go check out all the cool stuff over on thebeardstruggle.com and use coupon code STRANGE at checkout for 15% off your order. 15% with the code STRANGE? <laughs> I do like saving. Once more, that's thebeardstruggle.com and apply coupon code STRANGE at checkout for 15%. That's code STRANGE. Build yourself a better, stronger beard. I'm 
February 10th, 1962, Powers was released by the USSR. Uh, there was a prisoner exchange between the Soviet Union and the United States for a KGB spy that had been caught five years earlier um, in the United States. His name was Colonel Rudolf Engel. But he had another name. I don't remember what it was. Oh, um, it was super generic. Yeah. Like, it was... This is just, like, undercover name, It I was guess. such a super generic name that you just look at this man's name and you're like, oh, yeah, he's fake. <laughs> uh, these two men were brought to opposite sides of the... Checkpoint Charlie. That's what it's called. It's Checkpoint Charlie. Okay, but it's a bridge. It's a bridge, but it's called Checkpoint Charlie. Okay. Yeah. That connected East and West Berlin. The They had, like, negotiators with them, like, from each country, and then, like, a bunch of military protection, obvious for obvious yeah. reasons. Um, and they were talking in the middle of the bridge, and then they sort of, like, just, like, waved, like, all right. You're good now. And so uh, Powers and Abel just like walked across the white line that was on this bridge, I guess, at exactly 8.52 a.m. And they were free. Um, another guy was also involved in this. It was a student who, who was, was captured. Yeah, but in a different part. They were yeah. on, an, they were in another part of. Yeah, but he was also. Released. Yeah. Yeah, he was an American student. Right. He was also swapped for yeah. Rudolph Abel, whose name sounds really familiar. Um, when Powers came back to the U.S., he was criticized by a lot of people, claiming that, that he allowed himself to get captured, that he just let it happen. Um, and like we talked about, he, he didn't give them anything when he was captured. The documents for that were declassified in 1998, so I guess if you want to look into it. You can go down a rabbit hole like we just did. <laughs> we spiraled for like 10 minutes. <laughs> so they didn't get anything like we mentioned. And when he came home in 1962, him and his wife were not super duper happy. Uh, they actually got divorced in January of 1963, but they had separated months before. She was a severe alcoholic who would throw tantrums and she even overdosed on pills shortly after he returned. Uh, the reason that she did the pill overdose was actually also because of the CIA. Because while Powers was in custody, they needed to keep up public appearance. And she had already started sleeping with other men. And they had a whole press conference with her. And she showed up in a leg cast because she had gotten drunk at a nightclub, was caught dancing with another man. And when she was approached, she tripped, fell, and broke her leg. So when she got to this press conference, the CIA hopped her up on pills and gave her a list of statements that she was supposed to read and told her to say absolutely nothing that was not on the paper that they provided her with. Oh, my God. Yeah. When you said you were going to talk about her, I didn't know that. Oh, yeah. Anything that involves the CIA in the 1960s, this is... I know. This is like peak spy time. This is the spy time. You know, have you ever seen A Beautiful Mind? I have not. I've seen Spy Kids, though. Does that count? You've never seen A Beautiful Mind? I don't think so. Oh, he's from familiar. West Virginia. He's a real dude. It takes place during the Cold War. He has He's an incredible um, student, really great at math. He becomes a professor at a really young age, like high up there at uh, some high prestigious university. I can't remember the exact story. He has severe schizophrenia, and so he believes that they're, like, chasing after him the CIA and stuff like that, because he knows, like, secret codes or something. But he doesn't. He's just mentally ill, right. which is sad. But it's an incredible movie. So, yeah, around this time, I, too, 
would have the CIA? We're probably on a watch list now. I mean, they were already dabbling into stuff they should have been messing with in the 1960s and 50s. I know. Like, CIA is scary. Please don't put us on a watch list. <laughs> but if you do put us on a watch list. Wow. We're going to use it to our advantage. I want you to know that. <laughs> we will increase our viewer base substantially once they find out that we are a victim of the Central Intelligence Agency. And if we have anyone who works at the CIA who's listening to this episode, you know our little government spy friends, just, we're joking. Maybe. <laughs> anyway, shortly after he began seeing Claudia Edwards, also known as Sue Downey, they met while Powers was working at the CIA headquarters for a little bit. He was there for a little bit when he came back. And they got married on October 26, 1963. She had a daughter from a previous marriage, but he sort of took her in as her own, as his own, sorry. Um, her name was Dee, and then they had a son together, Francis Gary Power, Powers Jr., on June 5th, 1965. Cute. He's still kicking. He's a part of this um, museum foundation that's about his dad. I saw. Some other I want to go see it. It's not really far away. I thought it was in California. No, it's on an airbase. Thought it was around Maryland. Maybe I don't know. <laughs> now I'm gonna have to look it up. Um. Anyway, Francis flew for Lockheed as a U-2 test pilot from 1963 until 1970. So he was working for that company that made them. Yeah, it's just outside Washington D.C. Oh shoot, we could go. Um, his first book, Operation Overflight, was published in 1970. So this talks about his account of the U-2 incident. So he talks about what he went through. In 1972, he began flying for radio and television stations in Los Angeles, in Los Angeles California. Uh, so he was doing on-air weather news and traffic reports. So he finally became that weather pilot that his family thought he was the whole time. And then what happens? <laughs> um... <laughs> Not a good thing. On August 1st, 1977, Powers was working at the KNBC in LA. The helicopter he was flying on this day crashed into an empty Little League baseball field in Encino, California. By the way, three miles from his home. It was not that far from where he lived. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, they were returning from uh, Santa Barbara, where they had been taking aerial views of the brush fires that were happening at the time. So him and the cameraman who was with him died. At first, they didn't super know what happened and what the cause of the crash was. But I guess they were low on fuel, so he was attempting to make an emergency landing. And um, according to one witness that was in the area, the helicopter's tail rotor broke off as it was falling to the ground. And so they died. Interesting. And that's all I have on Francis Gary Powers. Okay, that sounds like a... And you too, and the CIA, and Lee Harvey Oswald, who definitely wasn't a CIA plant or a KGB plant that helped shoot down Francis Gary Powers. Then assassinated. And assassinated. John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Which is in... Is that episode one of season two? Um... Kennedy State of Mind. Kennedy State of Mind. Let's see. Which, by the way, we do like our try and do fun episode titles, and I thought that that was pretty clever. Episode 14. So season two, episode one, we talk about JFK. And the Kennedy family curse. Yep. 
I like that everyone. I completely forgot we had that. Only three votes. All of them. For totally the... a top. <laughs> God, I hate this. This is so fun. If you're interested in learning more about the Cold War, since we've discussed it on quite a few episodes, the Cold War Museum is located 30 miles outside of Washington, D.C. on an old air base. I don't know exactly cost of entry, but museums are great, and it's ran by Francis Gary Powers Jr. in association with the Smithsonian Institution, so you know that it's going to be a fantastic museum. Um, so yeah, go check that out. I'm not going to plug it into the episode details, but maybe if we go, I will. I'd be down for a museum trip. I love museums. And they're all free. All the Smithsonian's are free. Okay. okay ch chill. I know all of them. I've never been to any. There's one up there you really like. The only museum I, I think I've ever been to was the um, Andy Warhol Museum. Of course, the one we work in. Um, there's one that you really, really like. The um, Smithsonian Institution of the North and South American Indian. It's just stuff about like natives, natives to North America, like, you know, Cherokee, Blackfoot, things like that. Are you going to tell me Incas and Aztecs? And yes. Ah! Half the museum. Half the museum is just South American stuff. Oh, that's incredible. It's free. I've also been to a couple museums. I went to the, I went to a few art museums in San Antonio and one in Colorado. Madame Trousseau's Wax Museum in DC terrified me. I'll never go back. Oh, and because I'm pretty sure, pretty, pretty sure <laughs> that Justin Bieber's wax statue looked at me. And I I am terrified that, Justin I, Bieber? that I accidentally met Justin Bieber, who was not on display and was just standing there. And I just walked up and was like, I'm gonna get a picture with this wax man. Was it? I don't know, but I'm pretty sure I, I'm pretty sure he turned his head and looked at me. I remember the other museum I've been to. What was the other museum? Uh, Dolly Parton's Museum about her life in Dollywood, down in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. Oh, and uh, one more while we're on the subject. Oh of, my god! You know, spies, International Spy Museum in downtown D.C. Phenomenal. You can crawl through the air vents. They give you a secret identity when you come in, and they quiz you on it through the entire museum. It is so cool. Can we go? Yes. Today? No, probably not. No, we have time. We can be there by like 10 o'clock tonight. <laughs> I mean, I work tomorrow, but it's fine. They don't need me. Anyway, sorry for all these tangents at the end of the episode. This is this is a weird episode because we're in a different environment and I don't know how to feel about it. And there are cats and there's a dog that doesn't like I me. I lived here. <laughs> I didn't. Anyway. is August 12th, 2022. So today in history, 1492, disgustingly so, Christopher Columbus landed in the Canary Islands on his first voyage. I'll keep my opinions to myself. In 1877, Thomas Edison completed the first model of the phonograph. Fun and exciting. And in 1908, Henry Ford's company built the first Model T. Did you know he was incredibly anti-Semitic and actually agreed with Hitler's viewpoint? Great. So two shitty people. Yeah. Awesome. In 1983, General Manuel Noriega becomes commander of the Pan Panamanian, the Panama Army. And um, if you want to learn a little bit more about 
Manuel Noriega, you can uh, stay tuned. Yeah, just because we're gonna we're gonna talk about him too. Because guess who else is involved in that? That's right, the CIA. <laughs> this entire month is just gonna be us doing our best <laughs> to get blacklisted by an intelligence agency. In the year 1990, the most complete and best prefer best. Best preserved skeleton of a T-Rex was found on South Dakota's Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation. Nicknamed Sioux after Sue Hendrickson, the paleontologist who discovered the fossil, Sue is on display in the Smithsonian yes. Museum of yeah. Natural History. Yeah. Because I'm gonna do everything I can to convince everyone to go to that museum. <laughs> Just not in the summer. Don't go in the summer. You know they see almost a million visitors a month. Through the summer so a winter trip yes cool. when there's no no one. one it's free free thank you so much for tuning into this week's episode of strange history we hope you enjoyed learning about an international super spy and the very interesting incident surrounding his escapades I'm drawing a blank on what else I wanted to say. Did that throw you off the it, interesting incident? It no. What threw me off was the more question mark. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like my script writing is has gotten better in terms of I'll just leave stuff out and hope that we'll just say stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and we didn't read each other's scripts for this week, so this has been it's been a beautiful disaster. And it's only gonna get better as we dive more into season three of Strange History. <laughs> Woo! <laughs> what did I say? It's only going to get much more strange. Is yes. that what I wrote that one day? Much more stranger. <laughs> anyway, be sure to follow us on Facebook and Twitter. That's at Strange the Number Four History for all the latest updates and everything we got going on. And you can see Brad, who keeps tweeting about not getting on a watch list. Um, that's great. <laughs> you can also follow us on things like Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast. Amazon, Good Pods, Stitcher, Breaker, or really wherever your ears are listening. I'll list all of them. I don't tempt me. <laughs> there are more. We're available. And of course, always enjoy the strange, weird things that, that make, make us us. us.